Welcome back to They Talk Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. This is the pain and pleasure episode with our guest, Lee Cowart. You are at Voracious Brain on Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, and you wrote a book called Hurts So Good, <laughs> The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. You have on yes. purpose underlined on the title. Yes. <laughs> pain on purpose. Very specifically only about that kind of pain. Okay. So we're talking about consensual pain throughout this episode, people. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the book description on uh, the website. So published by Public Affairs. Okay. An exploration of why people all over the world love to engage in pain on purpose from dominatrices, religious ascetics, and ultra marathoners to ballerinas icy ocean bathers and sideshow performers i've been like half of those things <laughs> um, I <know> me too <laughs> god when you said you're like oh i took ballet as a child i'm like oh god my feet hurt right now just thinking about it mm -hmm. um yeah so okay so you let's see let me read a little bit more, more examples that that uh come up masochism is sexy human reviled worshipped and can be delightfully bizarre Deliberate and consensual pain has been with us for a millennia, encompassing everyone from black plague flagellants to ballerinas <laughs> dancing on broken bones to competitive eaters choking down hot peppers while they cry. Oh, my God. And they puke afterwards or they like it's like they running do. like snot. I'm like, Ugh. They so do. you have to puke afterwards. Otherwise, you get the capsaicin cramps. And those are oh God. horrible. I recently had them for the first time. And I was just like nude on the bathroom floor pressing my flesh into the tile just to feel something other than oh, what felt God. like labor pains it was like <laughs> you definitely don't want those oh my God. and it's fine you just have to wait it out there's really it's not a dangerous thing it's just uh it's just kind of an overload of your sensory receptors for capsaicin gosh so you went into the science of this i'm gonna read a couple more from the description because i just i love how many of these i'm like relating to and then just curious about uh so what else? Uh, it lives inside workaholics, tattoo enthusiasts, and all manner of garden variety pain seekers. Um, okay, so you describe yourself as a masochist, yes? Yes. Yes. From what age were you like, I am a masochist? I feel like forever. I really don't. I mean, part of it is that I started ballet really young, like three or four. So I was mm -hmm. indoctrinated into this like, culture of um, kind of dissociative high pain thresholds. <laughs> I love that. People think it's so it, easy and like no one that's ever not done ballet. If you've done it, you're like, it's hard. It is hard. It is hard cool. and it is painful. And mm. um, so I very much grew up in a culture that prized um, discipline and mastery over self when it came to pain. Mm -hmm. Um but then, you know, I look at my my family and my family is also very intense. Like my father, when he retired, his retirement gift to himself was to walk the entire Appalachian Trail in one go. Oh, my God. So I, I come from fairly intense people and I spent <laughs> yeah. 20 years in ballet and I just always had a fascination with pain. Um, I was very curious about it. And I was able to harness my ability to withstand it to be very successful in ballet and mm -hmm. um, to to a great detriment to to me as a as a person as and as an entity. My ballet training was incredibly abusive, and mm -hmm. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. 
I've actually mentioned a couple things about mine. So that's really <clears throat> validating and interesting to hear. Mm. For anyone who doesn't really understand. So like the shoes, like the 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 wooden shoes where you go up on your toes on point, like you're on wooden blocks in the shoes. And yes, you use padding like lamb's wool or like they start having squishy stuff like by the end of it when I was doing it. Um, but you're still like over the years training your feet and your body to like withstand that. But then also just like the posture. And you notice how we like ballerinas will have these long giraffe necks from like mm -hmm. pushing down our shoulders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like it shapes your body like every sport does, but ballet does some very significant things that I still see in my body and I haven't taken in like a decade and a half. Yeah, it's really wild. Um, and, you know, with point work, you have uh, so much pressure just on on like the tip of the toes. And for my, for my foot shape, it was just the big toe. Um, I have very square muscular stocky feet, which were well suited for that. Um Kind of Same. functionally, but not super aesthetically. They're not like long and beautiful, but they were really strong. Um, mm. And those, the boxes of the point shoe are like basically paper mache and they break down. So as you wear the shoe, you get more sensation of the floor. And I was talking to a sports physician and they were like, you know, to the uninitiated, uh, the sensation of being in a point shoe on point uh, would be enough to make the average adult just pass out. Mm -hmm. like so much muscle strength that goes into like that being in that shoe. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the same is true of a lot of things that come up in like circus and pole and stuff like that. Like these very painful things that people think just look very graceful. Mm -hmm. So do you find, okay, so we, that was significant definitely in your journey. You said you did it for 20 years. So how old are you mm -hmm. now? Uh, 36. 36. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll be 36 this year. So we're basically the same age. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. So do you find pleasure in non-physical pain? Uh, yes. Like, okay. Though, you know, actually, that's an interesting question. And the framing of that question is interesting to me because I feel, um, you know, for types of pain that are emotional pain, you know, I'm still mm. experiencing that with my body. So I'm still having a physical experience of that pain, maybe absent mm. the sharpness or the activation of my of this, you know, the nociceptors in the sensory field of my skin. Um, but I'm still having a very like embodied experience of the pain. So mm. emotional pain to me remains very physical. It, I feel it and it hurts. It's just a different kind of pain. That makes sense. Some of these questions that I wrote down were coming from other folks too, but, and I know that you don't speak for anyone except for yourself, but you've also researched a lot of the science. So what would be an example of pleasure in like emotional pain then, I guess? Sad movie. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Okay, I'm like, I know there's something in there. Sometimes I will think a thought like, um, I will think a thought like, what if my child died tomorrow? And I know that's painful, but I will start to explore that thought. And I don't know if that's my OCD or whatever, but sometimes I will lean into experience and try to imagine it just so that I can kind of, I feel like build my awareness or compassion. Mm -hmm. And then I step back. I'm like, Oh God, that would be terrible. And then I feel gratitude and I'm like, okay, when she's annoying me next time, I'm going to remember what this felt like. Mm -hmm. So I play little mental games with myself. And I think that would be a way that I find, I guess, gratitude or usefulness in emotional pain. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I feel like part of uh, my personal experiences with masochism is actually about um, finding my resilience and Ooh. exploring what it's like to withstand and what it's like to be tough 
in and showing that not tough in like the macho sense of like externalizing strength and like, but in that kind of like the interior sense of um, there is no feeling that uh, I cannot feel in bite-sized pieces. You know, there is like, Ooh. so you kind of, you can get up close to the edge um, and and start to feel the bigness of something and ex- and get a little bit of like data or information about how that's going to feel, how that might feel, and then step back. And it's a way to titrate your approach to having big sensation, be it big emotions or big physical pain. Okay. So for all my listeners who are stoned or on acid right now, <laughs> we're going exploring. Um, no, this is some really deep, like intangible conversation that I think is very relatable to a lot of people. So who is the book for besides everyone who is like you and me and interested in, in our pain? I feel like the book is for people who are curious. And what I try to do in my work in general as a writer and as a journalist is to encourage people to be um, curious about themselves while still being gentle and not um, not like sliding into threatened by the reality of what they feel or what they might mm. feel, or what they could feel. So how do we create, um, how do we create a space to be curious and open-hearted about ourselves? And that's very, very hard to do because we grew up in cultures that are not about embodiment, that are not about um, mm. kind mm-hmm. of being, being with the self. You know, there's all these mm-hmm. externalized markers of how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to feel. And it's very challenging to, it can be challenging to hear, like, what is your actual interior voice? And what does it mean to be curious in a generous way about yourself and about your body? You know, we all have Mm -hmm. one, we all have a body. And um, we get a lot of messages about uh, our body. And whether it's like, quote, good or not, whether it's like appropriate, whether it's doing the right thing or feeling the right thing or wanting the right thing. So how do we kind of get through some of the noise of the cultural programming and come into ourselves and feel like, what what do I really feel in my body right now? And that's Mm -hmm. surprisingly hard to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to, everything you just said, I totally agree with and understand. Um, I think it's hard sometimes when the way you feel that you could most like ground yourself or slow down or, you know, hear that inner voice. Um, if it's not a socially supported method, then it's like you're feeling shame on top of that. Like sometimes I just want to fucking sit down wherever I'm standing and I just want to like, it looks like a child's pose in yoga, but like put my face to the earth and just feel the fucking ground. It calms me down, but like try Mm. doing that in the middle of a fucking anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're in a park somewhere and someone else is doing yoga. They're like, what is wrong with that lady? It's like, I just, I'm going to have a panic attack. Hold on. I just need to put my face on the ground right now. No, I totally get that. Or like stimming, you know, or flapping or so many like autism or neurodivergent Mm -hmm. self-soothe behaviors. Like if that's what is calling to the body for them to do, but it's not socially acceptable, that's really tough to manage. It is really tough. Uh, I'm autistic. And hey, me too. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> when did you get screened? What age? So not until adulthood. I was I was initially diagnosed in my early 20s. And but the person who did it was very cruel and like mean about it. Mm-hmm. And I rejected it because she was so mean to me. And I was just like, she yelled at me for not knowing that I was autistic. 
Um, oh my this God. Is mental, this is a mental health professional. Um, uh-huh. And so I really rejected the diagnosis for a while until I started to like do my own research and talk to people in the community and come to understand that um, being, you know, kind of not having a full picture of what neuroconformity looks like for me, how that shaped my life and how I exist in the world with people who see it differently. It's been really good for me to understand mm. that like my sensation needs and my the way my brain works is fine. It's just um, maybe not what people are trained to do normatively in our culture. Mm. I uh, like it. Yep. We're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I just, I'm like, we're going to have some things in common. Um, <laughs> so I asked my listeners and my Instagram followers, if you're on there, I am still at stripper writer and at L underscore Stanger. Every day I open that and I'm like, did they kick me off yet? I'm very oh compliant. God, right. <laughs> right. Um, so I asked folks, what is your relationship with pain and pleasure? So I'm just going to read some and I'd love to have any of your reacts. Uh, Someone says, almost too intimate. Mm. Someone else says, goes hand in hand personally. Mm -hmm. Someone else says, it's complicated, hard to know where the line between healthy slash triggering is. Mm, Absolutely. Slippery slope. Sometimes the the messiness inherent causes people to like pull away because there's not an easy answer. And that answer might change. It's a moving target for everyone, uh, depending on context, mood, desire, why they want the scene and all of that. So, But a willingness to look at into the murkiness of where that line is and be present in your body. I just I don't think that something has to be sanitized and cut and dry for us to engage with it critically. And mm. part of what I do in my work is just encourage people, tell people that it is okay to not have an answer. And it is okay to be curious and walk away without like a definitive line in the sand because the act of being curious is in and of itself uh, enlightening and can be protective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to not have as much judgment around things because some things mm-hmm. just might look very inexplicable for me to behold. And that's okay. I don't have to feel a way about something that's happening. It just is what it is. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Someone says... Interchangeable. I cannot experience pleasure without pain as it keeps me present. Mm. Yeah. I mean, pain does bring us unequivocally into the present moment. It is very hard to um, kind of wander off from that, like in your mind, from that sensation, though lots of people play with that uh, in in a variety of ways. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I definitely, when I was younger, uh, I'm very ticklish. And so early physical encounters, like sexual encounters, um, were kind of difficult. Like I would laugh. I would get tickled by just like gentle touch. And so I started mm-hmm. exploring like firmer touch, like grabbing and, and like pulling and pushing so that it was a level of sensation that like felt good to me without like triggering like a, a recoil uh, mm-hmm. response from totally. like, the tickle. Totally. Oh, that yeah, totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that also seems like an autism thing, too. I was just reading about that. What is the ala? Oh, I can't remember it. It's it's when light touch can feel like physically painful. It's mm. something a lot of autists um, experience. I know the I know the word you're talking about, but I can't recall. Yeah. It. Ooh. Okay. If I find it later. Okay. So someone says, "I love giving both, but I know limits exist, and I struggle with my own pleasure." Oh, that's interesting. 
Someone else says, I do not like pain, but I like to consensually test others' limits. Okay, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Someone says, and again, the question was, what is your relationship with pain and pleasure? Someone says, it's one-sided. Both my partner and I love it pain and pleasure, but I have a hard time getting rough with him because I'm timid. Oh, that's just like, you don't know how to play that part. Yeah. 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 And that oh. there, are, you know, as someone who has had to look up how to do all sorts of things that other people take for granted, um, there are ways to learn how to top. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's very like, I like, I like a checklist. I like a, a breakdown, <laughs> you know, I like to read books about how to do things. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there available if you want mm-hmm. to like dip your toes into topping and that kind of power exchange while still mm-hmm. being respectful of your own timidity and your own boundaries. Mm-hmm. There's a lot Definitely. of play there though. Oh yeah. I think the art of topping by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton, I uh-huh. have that one. I have yeah, that one too. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think I should have a couple other recommendations, folks. Go to my website, lstanger.com, and then go to the resources. There's a book section. Um, yes, I need to update it, but there should be a couple in there that uh, give instruction related to some of these topics um, about how to top. So, okay, let's do a couple more. So to the question, what is your relationship with pain and pleasure? Someone says, pain is my outlet through impact or cock and ball torture. Oh, I had a partner that liked CBT. I was like mm-hmm. always a little afraid. That's my own, me being timid. I was afraid to like hurt him, hurt him. Just a lot mm-hmm. of check-ins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the only big chunks of the book that got cut out before publication was um, was a CBT scene. Really? And, yeah. And it, it wasn't- you, be- Why? Well, I really, because of pacing, like mm. it, I am still trying to find, I, I'm going to find a home for it or I'm going to self-publish it because it's very sweet. It was my mm. first time doing CBT on someone else. And, um, and it was very, I just, at the end of the scene, uh, the person I was playing with, he was so happy. He was oh, so blissed out. Yeah, it was so sweet. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we negotiated the scene and we did it. And I, I'd never hit someone in the balls that hard before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I was nervous and, and there was a, you know, but anyways, it was a very sweet scene and it was really hot. And afterwards it was just like, you know, I'm a switch and it was really nice to kind of see someone just kind of float away into subspace and be so held mm-hmm. after having so much, like such a huge dose of their preferred high sensation seeking masochistic and activity. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm thinking of, I miss him. Where are you? Come find me. There was my <laughs> CBT client in the strip club. Oh God. Mm. But like the way you just described the person you were interacting with, like, but yeah, the blissed out happy, there was nothing else. I'm like, Ah, like yeah, and a, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, if you publish that, let us let me know because um, that should live somewhere. That story, I'm sure. I will. Um, good. Yes, thank you. Okay, someone else says, "I love my partner smacking me around a little." Someone <laughs> else says, "I like some pain, nipple suction, spanking, biting. It helps me become aroused." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I've experienced. Um, 
as a sex worker, a lot of clients, and you know what, partners have done this too. Um, you tell me what you think. But like, if I ask someone to spank me, it's often they'll start like, if I want a spanking session, that's one thing. But if a client just like, is like, can I spank you? And I'm like, yeah. And then they just do it like super hard, like one time. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> either build up on it or I don't know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just hit too hard right off the bat with um, mm-hmm. like actual spanking, but it depends what you're into. Right. You know, and it depends on your mood, but certainly like uh, there's a really big difference like systemically in your body between a buildup and a just one heavy blow, you know, mm-hmm. that with, with buildup, you already have like, uh, you have the kind of the, the chemical soup that happens Mm -hmm. when you're in pain, you start to build that up, you start to get blood flow to the area being spanked, you kind of start to like, get into that headspace and surrender to it, surrender to the the pain, and or or lean into it or do whatever you do, there's lots of ways to be spanked and think about being spanked. But when it's just like a thunderclap, like an out of the blue, really hard hit, that to me in my body causes an adrenal surge. And yeah. sometimes I want that. Sometimes I want that a lot, but sometimes I do not. Exactly. <laughs> like, it depends. Like, am I in the mood for like um, a longer scene with some buildup or do I just want to do something that like sends me immediately into the stratosphere and like gets my armpits sweating in that like, like adrenal, <laughs> like pumped kind yeah, of yeah. way. It's a very different experience though. <laughs> For me, at Definitely. least. <laughs> Definitely. And this is why communication is important, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's take a break. Uh, everybody go look up Hurt So Good by Lee Cowart on Twitter at Voracious Brain. Hey Elle, where did you train to be a sex educator? I went to instituteforsexuality.com. If you do not need to be ASECT certified, you can take their shorter program. It's new. It's called Sweet Sexual Wellness Education and Enlightenment Training. It's about half the price of their regular program and you can do it at your own pace because it's all on demand. You can take it online. You can take one learning path at a time to make it more manageable financially. Go to instituteforsexuality.com and click on on-demand programs. You can check out their other classes too. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm interviewing Lee Cowart. Their book is Hurt So Good, The Science and, oops, where is it? The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. This is the Pain and Pleasure episode. Please check us out. That's me and my beloved editor, John. You remember John from the last podcast, perhaps. We're on theytalksex.com and you can see some affiliates, friends, and sponsors uh, hosted over there. So Lee and I are going to do listener questions. Mm-hmm. Listener question one, and I'm going to let you take the lead on this. Okay. Can you help explain how enjoying pain is sometimes therapeutic? I love beatings when stressed. Mm. Oh, there's mm. a lot there. <laughs> that is a wonderful mm. question. And there are many strands to that particular knot. But uh, one of them, so I like to, pain is always subjective. 
uh, usually when I when I talk about my work, we start there. There's no like machine that I could scan your brain with that would show you or show someone exactly quantifiably how much pain you were in. Uh, it depends mm. on your mood. It depends on your expectation. Have you been here before? Do you want this? So you you develop these associational metrics with sensation. And so something like that, having an intense sensory experience when you're already stressed out, if you do that repeatedly, then you create like a coupling of like, okay, well, if this happens, then I know this will make me feel better. On a physiological level, you have the, um, you have your endogenous morphine or your endorphins. And this is something that like, this is like the, the chemical pain relief that comes. And it's also, it involves the um, endocannabinoid system. So you have this whole mm. pharmacy that's coming from inside the house that releases chemicals that, that do make you feel better. It's akin to like the runner's high. You know, we have some language for this kind of phenomenon. Hot, peppers mm -hmm. hot pepper eaters talk about it after, you know, the high you get from the peppers. So there mm. is a physiological change that's happening in your body when you experience painful sensation that you consent to and asked for and want. Um, now, mm. obviously, these pain relief systems come online whether or not the pain itself is consensual. But in the case of like, why does, like say, why does a heavy spanking make me feel so much better when I'm already upset? You know, you think about the activation curves inside the body, like the way that your hormones and your signaling molecules go up and down. And you think about how doing something really difficult or painful that kind of gets you outside of your head, gets your body into a different state, might be able to kind of bring you back down to your baseline from that stressful point because it gives it a place, it gives all that energy a place to go. It gives those mm -hmm. your brain a chance to focus on one thing and that can create peace. You know, having a quiet brain, even if the quiet is from the screaming sensation of pain, but just having that one thing in your brain mm -hmm. can be such a nice break. I mean, I have a very mm -hmm. busy brain. <laughs> and mm -hmm, so being too. able to like indulge in painful activities in situations where I feel safe and can just like shut my brain off, be this electric meat and have these feelings and then just like purge it. You know, just like have those feelings, let my body do what it does and kind of get into like the animal, like parts of me. Yeah, that mm -hmm. definitely can blow off some steam for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is why a lot of people enjoy sex after an argument with their partner. Mm. Because they're already like in that state, like that heightened state. Yeah, like not exactly the same thing, but yeah, totally. Like it's it's a if it's a more acceptable way to blow off your aggression that you have at yourself or the situation or them when you're like spank me, <laughs> or, throw me around, you know, like hand on the throat. I always end up at this point. I mean, I had so much sexual trauma as a teenager. Um, not so much. I'm sorry. I had a, like a, a low to moderate amount. I would say compared to many folks that I know, uh, but as an adult and like now a middle-aged someone who's been sexually active for 20 years, I end up instructing my partners how to be rough with me because mm -hmm. they are mindful and they do care about me. So it's been really interesting to like, it really, I see how people are like, this is empowering to have someone hit me. It's like when you've shown them how you like it mm -hmm. and you trust them. 
Yeah. There's an incredible book called Sensational Flesh, Race, Power, and Masochism. And it's by Amber Jamila Musser. And she's interviewing a famous BDSM educator, Melina Williams-Haas. And and so they are talking about uh, masochism in the context of race. And Williams-Haas says this incredible, this incredible line. She says, it's not blasphemy to want to touch that wound. Ooh. So Melina mm -hmm. Williams-Haas is married to a white man, German uh, orchestra musician, I believe. Yes. So there's also that interesting dynamic there. Mm -hmm. And she's she's been very public about her experiences with race play. And Mm -hmm. people have very strong reactions to that for understandable reasons. Across the spectrum, certainly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And so that's interesting to witness those conversations. I love that line, though. You said it's not blasphemy to want to touch the wound. Yes. It like it has. I mean, I'm just covered in chills. Like it has stuck with me for it's just never Mm. left my brain since I read it because this I recently had surgery and part of recovery involves touching the incisions. Um, Yes. And when it came time to do that, I was very scared and I I didn't want to, I felt, I felt distrusting of my body. I felt distrustful of the wounds themselves and it came time to touch them because you, you have to break down the scar tissue. You have to teach these new, newly grown nerves, what their daily sensory inputs going to be. Like you have to like reincorporate the wound to your body. And that involves touch. And I was so hesitant Mm. to do that. And then, but once I started to slowly, I titrated that very slowly, but once I got into the scar care and touching my incisions and touching my body where it had been altered, I, I came back to that quote and understanding Mm -hmm. that like things really cannot heal if they are sealed away in the dark and left unlooked Mm -hmm. at and left untouched and left unfelt. And even, you know, I have, I have sexual trauma as well. And I am a survivor of domestic violence and Mm -hmm. I have been through my, my one body has been through quite a lot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so to be able to explore a sensation that in one context was very damaging, very harmful, very traumatic, to be able to feel that in a different context, to have a different associational metric to that sensory input has been an incredible joy for me. And it has it has been healing. And like BDSM, BDSM is obviously not ther- inherently therapeutic, and it's not the Mm-mm. same thing as therapy whatsoever. That doesn't mean that people don't benefit from it. And just this idea that it is okay to to look where you are hurt and it is okay to play where you are hurt. Mm-hmm. I love all of that. Uh, I feel like we have to definitely give credit where credit's due. So Molina is spelled M-O-L-L-E-N-A mm-hmm. Williams hyphen H-A-A-S. So, and you can find her on Wikipedia. Uh, ooh, International Miss Leather 2010. I saw that today <laughs> when I was prepping for this. <laughs> Cute. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so funny. We've come full circle. Okay. So all of that is great. All right. I think we're ready to move on to the next question. And that is listener question two. And that relates to kind of what you just said. We're talking about um, partner relationships. And that could relate to having trauma around domestic violence or not. But how do I, listener question two, how do I approach the topic of what is too much, in caps, with my partner? Ah. 
what is too much mm-hmm. with my partner? I, mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I feel like those kinds of conversations go better if they are not in the heat of the moment. Obviously, there are mm-hmm. ways to have, you need to be able to have ongoing consent and during, uh, during a scene, but being able to articulate, like if I'm playing for, with someone for the first time, we do our, negoci- our negotiation prior to anything else happening. Like I want from like a, just kind of a boring Tuesday afternoon kind of brain to hear like what they like, what I like, what their limits are and stuff like that. So that when mm-hmm. we do start to play, there's already this kind of basic understanding of the approximate locations of like, yellow and red levels for that person. If mm-hmm. if the person is not... Now, obviously, if you tell a person, like, if this is where I like to call it, this is what I'm interested in, and they just completely overwrite that, then that is new information that tells you about the relative safety of playing with that person and might be caused to uh, have another conversation, renegotiate, and maybe back out but when it comes to like how do you get the right level of sensation from your play partner that takes mm-hmm. that takes talking that takes self-reflection mm-hmm. um and that takes practice communicating no one gets it right all the time mm-hmm. and i i've said this before and i'll say it again if you're afraid to at any point speak up like really afraid like i understand being worried that you're like oh this could be awkward or change the dynamic or make them uncomfortable but like if you're really afraid to tell your partner like oh that's too hard or that's too much or this actually when you lean this way it kind of pokes me a bit with your elbow like that sucks and ask yourself one do you think they probably would like to know these things because they care about you or two do they not want to hear it because they don't care about you okay get out of that relationship please right yes yeah yes um right okay and i again with like going back to what i said i usually end up like teaching people how to hurt me and care for me and that includes being like uh-uh not like that mm-hmm. softer please mm-hmm. slow down you know you know like oh, that's good <laughs> like yes and and you brought teach. up aftercare, and I think that that is something that negotiating what you like for aftercare uh, ahead of time is great. Is great because when you are in that headspace after the scene, um, for that for your partner to already know what it is that you like to do in that, like, do you need to like? Some people are like, I would like to be held. I would like to take a shower. I would like to have a snack, or like, I would like to go mm-hmm. out. I would like to go for a run. Like, there are all these different. Uh, the mm-hmm. scene is not over when the impact, like when the sensation of the pain stops. And so being able to like talk through not only what you want before and during, but after as well can really, uh, I think, enhance the whole experience and increase feelings of of safety that can make exploring the feelings of the pretend feelings or real feelings of unsafety unsafety that you're doing in a safe environment. <laughs> it's a convoluted mm-hmm. way to say that, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. knowing that your needs will be met after the scene or for me, if I know that aftercare has been talked about, um, I can let go even more because I'm not worried about how I'm going to uh, advocate for myself once my brain has turned into jello. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. What you said earlier about um, probably don't want to like start having these conversations in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of tools and we've given so many tools and resources on this show and uh, Strange Bedfellows previous podcast, but there's a make time for the talk.com and there's a um, status, turn ons, avoids, uh, risk awareness, and then something else. And that's by my friend, Dr. Evelyn Dacker. But that's like a model for conversations about these things. Oh, love that. Yeah. Make time for the talk.com. That's right. So that brings me to the next question. Listener question three. This one I had to read like four times. I was like trying to envision this for myself. Question is, is it normal for me to never use a safe word with impact play? My top always has to call scene. Mm. I'm not, I don't want to pass judgment on what's normal, but my only like thought advice is maybe like it's just a mismatch of like compatibility of what you're into and you're just into more than your top is. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think? There, I feel like there are a couple, it's, it's hard to know without additional details what the, di- what the dynamic looks like. Um, certainly. I feel like my first question is, do, if you never call, if you never call to stop your scene, is it because you're, you haven't hit your limit and like you actually, you want more sensation or is it because you don't want to assert a boundary in that moment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, it's, again, we're not going for perfect here. We're just going for present and embodied and you know the amount of play that you want one day might be different than another day but like would you can can you envision a a point at which you would tell your top to stop you would call red or your safe word or what have you and if you can conceive of that limit and understand where it might be i think that that is a, a healthy question to ask and and awareness to have but if it's more like i don't want to stop my top because it would feel I would feel like and you know maybe the asserting the boundary changed the dynamic of the scene or I don't want to disappoint mm-hmm. my top or this kind of yeah. people pleasing behavior mm-hmm. that uh, what if they don't want to play with me again or whatever right will they still like me it. as a bottom if yeah. I stop um if I assert my boundaries and um yeah, so it's it's more like if it's if you feel like you know where your limit is and you're just not hitting it, then that seems like maybe it's time to renegotiate how much sensation you want and like have a frank conversation um, about wanting to take it, like wanting to try a little more sensation next time. But if it's more of a like, I'm not sure that I would want to assert that kind of a boundary during a scene like that, and I would rather just take it and go past my limit and not have to speak up. Uh, that mm. can get you into some dangerous territory and also makes you can make a person an unsafe person to play with. Like I mm-hmm. need to know that my partner understands where their limits are and I need to trust that they will stop me. And if I'm playing with someone mm. who I do not, tr- if I, if, if I find out that someone does not feel comfortable speaking up and articulating that they're like close to their limit or they've hit their limit, then I no longer would feel safe um, playing mm. with them mm-hmm. because I wouldn't mm-hmm. know for sure that we were in uh, an acceptable zone of sensation. Mm-hmm. Writer Clementine Morgan said that too, that it's the sub's responsibility to communicate their boundaries yeah. because otherwise they're not reliable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like that. And it's uh, interesting. I didn't plan it this way, but 
Uh, listener question three relates to the previous one about what is too much with my partner. <laughs> so there's many ways to approach it. Just depends kind of what's going on. Hopefully this is giving some framework for people. Mm-hmm. This last one is kind of a tricky one for me. Um, listener question four, what's a healthy way to get out your masochistic urges if your monogamous partner isn't into it? So the other partner doesn't want to inflict pain, mm-hmm. I think is what is happening. Um, so if it relates explicitly to sexual masochism, then there there's a whole world of self-play that that can open up if someone's interested in exploring painful sensation and sexual arousal just by themselves. Um, if it's more broadly like I have these kind of uncharacterized masochistic impulses, then there are lots of things that people do for pain um, that are fun, <laughs> like hot like hot sauce, uh, chili pepper eating, mm-hmm. polar plunges, long runs, saunas, like... Saunas. I was just about to say sauna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just bought a sauna for my 30, 35th birthday last year. I was like, you know what? I'm going to invest in my self-care. Oh, nice. Yeah, your brain just, especially if it's snowing in Portland and you can like get out of the sauna and then roll in the snow. Oh my God, bliss. bliss. I know. I went yes. I went to yeah. a, a Russian bathhouse um, for book research mm. and Ooh. I, it was, it was the hottest room I've, I, I've been to saunas and I was like, okay, I, I get what this is about. Um, and then I went to that one and I was like, I'm a baby. I'm a baby. And if there weren't other people in here showing me that this was actually survivable, I would be the fuck out. I would not be here. I was like, like holding my face and just like looking at the floor and just breathing. Oh, God. And uh, it's the only time I've ever loved the cold. Because uh, after wow. I got out, I went and I pulled a rope hanging from the ceiling and a bucket of, of cold water just dumped on my body. And I was oh, like, God. okay. That is what cold feels like when it is good. <laughs> oh my god! Um, oh, so yeah, yes. I, I feel I feel like people actually tattooing. Yes, tattoos, piercings, hook suspensions, um, branding. Yeah, yes, and mm-hmm. self, you know, like self self play, like self piercing, self smacking. You can do a lot with a, the back of a hairbrush uh, by yourself, <laughs> <laughs> and I think a willingness to like. Uh, you know, explore. Not all types of masochistic sensation feel good to all people. Like it's a very personal thing. And we all kind of incorporate um, pleasurable, aversive experiences in our own lives every day, whether it's like nail biting or super hot showers or, Mm. you know, also these kind of little micro dosing benign masochism. So I think being Mm -hmm. curious about like, what do you feel drawn to personally? And then just trying some stuff out. Some of it will feel good in the good, bad way. And some of it might just feel bad. And then you're like, oh, cool. Well, that's new information. And they move on. <laughs> now I know what I like or I don't like so much <laughs> and at this time. So we're going to take another break. We are talking to Lee Cowart, the author of Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. You can find them on Twitter at Voracious Brain and Instagram at Voracious Brain. Find me, L. Stanger, your host, on lstanger.com or Twitter at lstanger. Stanger. 
Did you know that Monistat and Vagisil can make your vagina so much more unhealthy and actually make it burn? So instead, I recommend Momotaro Apothecas, salves and oils. Check out their products. I even use it to prevent razor burn because I shave pretty often down there. Use code STRIPPERWRITER. Hey, that's me for a discount and let us know how you like our products and stay tuned for an upcoming episode on vulva and vaginal health because I love talking to small business owners that are creating better products for our bodies and that includes our genitals. Thank you to our listeners who rate or review the show on your listening app. I think we have five stars on Apple Podcasts, and that makes me feel really good, actually. So, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Uh, there's only a couple of unintelligible hate rants on there. Um, there always are. There always are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Life's a spectrum. Uh, yeah. So we're talking to Lee Cowart. This is the pain and pleasure episode. Their book, Hurt So Good. The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose is available on hardcover or ebook or audiobook. That's cool. So let's look at, okay, that was something, uh, yeah, I was going to talk about on break. So I'm finding after I've had so many conversations with people relating to sexuality or, you know, bodied experiences or trauma that a lot of these things obviously are connected. Mm -hmm. I... Yeah, I interviewed my tattoo artist friend. Her name is Alice Carrier. Uh, she world traveled, but she's out of Portland. And it's interesting, in the episode, we started talking about um, tattooing being a form of like responsible self-harm. Mm -hmm. And that branched off into uh, consent to wear tattooing practices, which, you know, it's the same thing like consent to wear sex practices. We have models for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just think this stuff is really, really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of us go through some things that are very similar, but just so unique to our own selves. So I'm happy to have you here. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, I, you know, I think that there is such, uh, there's such a taboo around the concept of self-harm and mm -hmm. that it makes it hard to talk about it. Um, I, I mean, when I left ballet, I my whole life fell apart. I almost died from an eating disorder. Um, I yeah yeah I was so I was so thoroughly abused in ballet, um, and wow. spent twenty years um, just kind of sublimating my rage. And when I left ballet, I didn't realize how angry I was. I didn't I couldn't feel anything, and I didn't have anything to fill that void. And I was furious, and I turned that rage inwards, and it almost killed me. Um, and I did all manner of harmful things to my body um, as a way to manage the depth of pain that I felt. And I, mm -hmm. I don't think that there's anything. I think that using sensation to cope is morally neutral, um, but it, it can be devastating. And it it is so fraught with feeling and with need. And it wasn't until... I found a therapist who was curious about why I did it and not just condemning me for doing it, that I was able to make any progress out. You know, I was so, I basically went to mental health professionals and they just yelled at me um, mm. for 
for being so sick and that wasn't autistic apparently yeah yeah that too i had some i've had i have some medical trauma let's be honest yeah Um, yeah yeah legitimate and because the reality is when people are engaging in self-harm from a desperate place they are seeking to meet a need and Mm -hmm. being curious about what that need is and finding different ways to approach getting it met is how you heal that kind of disconnect condemning someone for an act that the viewer believes to be blasphemous doesn't create a space for healing. And it is hard to, since there's such a taboo around self-harm and certain types of it are much more taboo than others. Uh, You know, people Mm -hmm. who, who, people who self-harm is like uh, working out to the point of injury um, that Mm. is draped in the dignity of athleticism and no one bats an eye. But oh, I love that. Right. But people who uh, draw blood on themselves or hit themselves or these or other kind of Mm -hmm. any other kind of self-harm, it doesn't carry the same cultural weight or cultural Mm -hmm. normalcy. And it pushes it underground and things that get pushed underground are left to fester. And I'm just trying to, with my work, create a little bit of open space for people to talk about and think about the ways that they've managed their emotion using physical sensation and where Mm. the line between safe and dangerous is for them personally. Mm. See, I love that. And I'm thinking about a lot of my depressed and suicidal friends, some who are still living, some who did complete suicide. And I'm thinking about the ones who are still living, how a lot of them have been successful in pivoting their drinking or partying or, you know, like, needle drugs or cutting into like, yeah, working out obsessively mm-hmm. or, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, other like endorphin, you know, or skydiving, I'm going to become a skydiving instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the survivors, we survivors have been able to, yeah, pivot and find other ways that we can like, I think control what is happening to us and also be curious about the unknown. Yes. There are, there are so many people when I when I was researching the book and was talking with people in the like the chili community, the hot pepper heads, um, mm-hmm. I met so many people who were in recovery. Who yeah, were like I, I, I am high sensation seeking. I uh, have like I have a need for escapism in myself. I have the brain that I have, and hot, eating super hot peppers gives me uh, a rush. It gives me a high. It is safe for me to do. And it's a way for me to incorporate a need, a need for a sensation in the face of emotion without doing something that's going to cause irreparable harm to my physical self. So can I tell you, so folks who've been with me for years, um, they remember my partner, Brian, who died by suicide February 6, 2021. Mm, my apologies. Um, and. Yeah, thank you. In November, yeah, in November of 2020, we watched on Netflix uh, an episode about pepper eaters and like the hottest chilies in the world. And he ordered some. And this was still in like the the midst of COVID shutdown for for this area. And um, (laughs) so he started making what he did was he infused this like 90 proof vodka mm-hmm. 90% whichever one is stronger he put some of the hottest chilies ever in that and let it soak and he would do these little short videos where he would like take shots of it on Instagram mm-hmm. yeah 
So after he died, um, we all drank a shot of the pain juice is what we've called it. And it still lives in his locker in his old workplace. Mm. And, I, <laughs> you know, it's just there's so many things like right there. I'm like, Brian was depressed, you know. So the chili pepper was really, really fun for a short while. Yeah. that's Was it um, Was it We Are the Champions? Yes. Mm-hmm. I Ed Curry, yeah. who is the creator of the Carolina Reaper pepper, uh, was, was in mm-hmm. that. And um, because of him, I actually grew my own Reaper peppers and made, <laughs> I made paint juice. <laughs> I have a jar of Reaper peppers you and you? alcohol in my cabinet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Cheers. Ryan uh, would love that. He would say yes. It is such an experience. Uh, my partner and I ate Reaper peppers together as like a, as a thing to do. And we filmed it. And, you know, I was- Yes. And you know, like for New Year's this year, um, I we weren't going out because of COVID stuff in this area. And so we got on, my partner and I got on Zoom with some friends and we all did shots we of did Reaper it. Pepper hot sauce and then sang yeah. karaoke to each other while crying. We all sang Fernando Aww. by ABBA on webcam while just snotting and crying and laughing. And it was so stupid and it was so joyful and it hurt so much. And it was just such a wonderful thing to do when I couldn't be physically close to, uh, to them. Ceremony. Yeah, for sure. Ritual. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oof. So there's an article on bbc.com, Why Pain Feels Good, mm-hmm. published, this is a bit older, October 2015, written by Zaria Gorvit. So it starts out talking about the pepper people. I'm going to scroll down. It's talking about the biological links between pain and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, so they're talking about runner's high here. So bursts of intense exertion release lactic acid, a byproduct of the breakdown of glucose when oxygen is in short supply. The acid irritates pain receptors in the muscles, and these communicate their plight to the brain through electric messages sent through the spinal cord. The signals are interpreted as a burning sensation in the legs, usually causing the runner to slow down or stop. That is until the nervous system's control center, the hippocampus, kicks in. This seahorse-shaped portion of the brain responds to pain signals by ordering the production of the body's own narcotics, endorphins. The proteins bind to opioid receptors in the brain and prevent the release of chemicals involved in the transmission of pain signals. This Mm -hmm. helps block pain, but endorphins go further, stimulating the brain's limbic and prefrontal regions, the same areas activated by passionate love affairs and music. Yes, yes. It's a post- Pain rush similar to the high of morphine or heroin, which also bind to the pr- ba- to the brain's opioid receptors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting so, about uh, uh, endorphins. Yeah. Uh, they they disca- We knew about like, like scientists knew about morphine before they knew that the human brain had receptors for it. So when we were like learning about brain receptors, we realized that the human brain had a receptor for heroin for opiates and scientists were like wait what so that the term endorphin is endogenous morphine uh, because we knew about Mm. morphine before we really understood that there were there was like actual (laughs) like uh sites for it to bind to in the brain um but yes the the chemical soup of that comes with painful stimuli uh can feel very pleasurable in the right context 
Absolutely. So what are some resources that have been helpful for your learning about this stuff? You already mentioned some of the places you visited for book research. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I and Melina William Cross. Yes, I I read voraciously. Um, I have uh, I have a pretty extensive library of masochistic related books, and but I think what has really been foundational to my work is talking to people talking to masochists and letting them tell me in their own words why they do it, what they get out of it, um, how it makes them feel. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of masochists in in the context of my work and also just wow and and, and prior to that like it's the community that I'm in anyway and uh, s- talking to people has really illuminated the ubiquity of masochism. Um, a lot of people, sometimes often, something that happens frequently is that I will talk about my work and someone will be like, well, I'm not a masochist. I would never do that. I don't get it. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> and then we keep talking and they're like, oh my God, I'm a distance runner. I'm doing the same thing. Or like, oh my God, I, I, I love getting tattooed. Mm. Oh my God, that's me. And it's that, oh my God, that's me moment that just like lights me up like a Christmas tree. Cause like, yes, it's a spectrum and we move across it all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's been this like, I mean, the word masochist comes from a single person, you know, uh, the word masochism is still somewhat taboo because it came into its origin was uh, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who's the author of Psychopathia Sexualis, oh. which is one of the first European texts about sexual pathology. And Richard von Kraft Ebbing found out that this very famous author, Leopold von Sacher-Massach, uh, author of Venus and Furs, still widely mm. read today, uh, Kraft Ebbing found out that Sacher-Massach was not writing pure fiction. But he actually really <laughs> did like to get dominated and spanked and all of this like, quote unquote, humiliating mm-hmm. activity. And so without mm-hmm. telling Masak he was doing this, uh, he created the word masochism oh to describe God. a sexual paraphilia. And oh my God. it ruined Masak's life. Um, oh my God. Since then, the dictionary definitions of masochism have expanded beyond purely the sexual, but there's still this like very taboo association of like sex with, with masochism. Cause sometimes that is there obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in some people there is a desire to not be associated with someone that they feel is deviant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're kind of, it's, Certainly the involvement of sexuality kind of muddies the water of of self-reflection. And it can be hard for people to understand that the same stimulus can be sexual at times and non-sexual at other times. Like I'm really into Mm -hmm. pain, but it's only sexual pain, a a small fraction of what I actually do in my everyday life. Uh, But I can't do both. And so, you know, people kind of have this like, oh, I don't want to be categorized with them. Ooh, masochism. Oh no, I'm not a freak. I would never do that. And mm-hmm. then through talking mm-hmm. about what actually happens in the body and the emotional reality of it, 
it's so nice when people come around and go, oh, oh, I never thought of it like that. Oh, I guess I'm a little bit of a masochist. I can see, <laughs> I can see the appeal now. Uh, that's such a You're fun part of my stigma. job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally are. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, so I ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have any sex tips for our audience? Oh, <laughs> that's such a good <laughs> question. Um, I feel like people always expect me to say something um, kind of like profoundly related to BDSM. Uh, mm-hmm. But really, my, my best sex tip is to um, have fun, talk to your partner, figure out what you really mm-hmm. like, and mm-hmm. don't feel like you are doing something wrong because it doesn't feel good to you. It just might not be for you. You know, a willingness mm-hmm. to like not take it so seriously all the time, a willingness to talk about it. And if talking about it out loud feels weird, do it in writing. I do a lot of my negotiations in writing. Um, and that's Ooh. okay, too, because like it, it yeah. gives me a chance to be as clear as possible. Like obviously that a lot of that's the autism talking. Uh, but <laughs> I like I like really direct and precise communication. So and it can be sexy, mm-hmm. like negotiating consent does not have to be like a bureaucratic endeavor. Like it can't be fun. (laughs) Let it be fun. Mm -hmm. Trust your body and listen to it. Listen to what feedback Mm -hmm. you're getting from your body. It might surprise you. Mm -hmm. All of that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was the pain and pleasure episode with Lee Cowart. (laughs) You can find them at voracious brain on Twitter and Instagram. And I really look forward to, I'm going to request your book right after I get off of this recording. Uh, Folks find Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. I'll see you on the internet. Lots of us know to grab a towel when we're on our period for period sex, but what if you could just get the layer? Try getthelayer.com because it's not just a sex blanket. It's great for not ruining sheets, bedding, furniture, whether you're on your period, whether you're a squirter, whether you're just trying to be polite. It's black. It's discreet. You can get 10% off when you getthelayer.com and use the code L-E-L-L-E, all caps, my name. Try it out. Let me know how you like it. It is my travel companion. Get the layer.com.